a really great uh, example. I know in my own experience in the past, I could get quite nervous about putting in a low ball offer because there's like, if I offend them, then I might've missed out on the deal. But generally, if you start low, there's only one place you can go, which is up, right? You know, even if they fully are offended, they'll probably get over it if you offer them a bit more money. So just kind of a good reminder there that don't be afraid to go in low and work your way back up. It's a lot harder to start high and then come back down. But I think the real magic in there is understanding the human element of what is a customer feeling when they are on the receiving side of an acquisition. Their biggest fear is, hey, is this customer going to screw me? Or, you know, should I look for another vendor? And if you can, particularly as the CEO, lead by sending an email and saying, hey, here's immediately what we are going to do to look after you. Here's all the goodies that you're going to get. And then actually following up and then the key customers, you jump on the phone and you call them and you say, hey, how are you going? You know, we're going to work through this with you guys. That's where there is really a lot of value in knowing your numbers in the business. I know what my cost to acquire a customer is. I know what my customer lifetime value is. I know how much I can reduce my churn for every additional service that a customer buys from me. Uh, I know that if I get an X amount of conversion rate on X amount of leads, I'm probably going to get X amount of customers. And if I'm selling them on average this much, then that's exactly what the numbers are going to look like for the next few years. And when you know all of those numbers and you just really live those numbers, then you can make really informed decisions about these. And, and all of this just comes down to a spreadsheet. Hey, and welcome to another episode of Entrepreneurs Rising. I am Carl Taylor, and again, I'm joined by my amazing host, uh, co-host, Peter Moriarty. And this is a part two episode. You may have previously listened to our episode where we talked about buying businesses and why you might want to do that and how that might work. And in particular, uh, so if you haven't listened to that yet, go back and check that out because it's really a good context frame before you dig deep into this episode because in this episode Pete is going to generously go through a number of key numbers stories lessons learned along the way on a couple of the deals that he has done so I'm going to turn this over to Pete and let him get away with the deals you've done so hey all right this is a deep dive we deep have dive. three deals that we have highlighted these are unique deals and I think the point that I want to illustrate with sharing these is for you to think creatively about you know what might work for you. One of these deals, I paid a little amount of money for a lot of value. I kind of got lucky and I executed really well. Another deal, I solved a big problem and that one only cost me $1, literally over 100 customers. And the third deal, I paid a lot of money for, but it was very much a strategic deal where I got a lot of upside, upside in excess of what the current value of the business was. And so that was one where I was paying a lot more money than the business was actually worth in itself, but I knew what the upside was and I knew I could capitalize on the upside. So three different deals. These are not your stock standard, you know, 1.5 times EBITDA and see you later. Uh, these are uh, unique deals. And I think that's what excites me about growing businesses through acquisition is that you get to make up the rules. This is all just deal making. When you spot the opportunity, and we talked in the last episode about having an asset that you know you can grow and having a path to increasing the value of that asset, like you get to make the rules. And that's what excites me about this. 
it's totally about what you think it's worth, right? Just it, it all comes down to what value you can uh, get from it and what you see. And yeah, absolutely. And we should touch on if, if you were like, what, what, what was that thing? EBITDA he talked about? That stands for earnings before interest, tax, depreciation, and amortization. It's basically if you go and talk to your accountant to get a valuation of your business, that's effectively what they're going to give you is this is what your EBITDA is. And then they might give you a multiple of that, which is, you know, let's say your earnings before interest tax depreciation amortization was 200,000 and they're going to say you're worth two times multiple, meaning it's worth two times that 200,000. So it's worth 400,000. That's a very purely financial way of looking at it. And that multiple, I mean, that could be an episode in itself of how that multiple is impacted, but we're basically saying these types of deals are not looking at it purely from that financial aspect that your accountant might. Yeah. And at the end of the day, most businesses that are for sale, like through brokers and whatnot are priced at two to three times EBITDA as their value. On average, businesses sell, and this is the average across Australia, on average, businesses sell for one to 1.5 times EBITDA. So you can see that a number of businesses are just overvalued in the marketplace. And that's just the reality of our small business landscape, that so many of them are key person dependent, meaning it's dependent on the founder. They're not really in a good shape to sell. And as we said in the last episode, people sell shit. <laughs> you know, no one's, yeah. no one's going to sell, no one's going to sell a great business. They're going to hang on to it. Well, and, and also there's a lot of numbers that are, you know, put their, wet their finger, put it in the air and go, this feels good. And why does it feel good? Usually it's how much debt they're in or how much you know, personal debt they want to pay off. That's why they want their half a million. Let's, let's get into the actual numbers of some deals. So Pete, back to you. Speaking of uh, selling shit. Well, that's the second deal, actually, that was selling shit. But the, the first deal is solving a problem. Um, and this, the business that I bought for a dollar. Uh, I acquired a hundred and no, it's even more than that. It's 120 customers in the G Suite mailboxes, which is the, like the, basically the number of uh, the services that we're bringing on board. It was uh, nearly 500 mailboxes that we brought on board and I acquired that business for a dollar. Now, is that the only cost of actually acquiring that business? No, there are staff costs for the time it took to do the integration. And this was a particular integration that required some effort on our part. Uh, and so I priced that at $10,000 uh, in staff time to actually do that integration. Uh, so it was $10,001 was the actual price for me to acquire that business. How does a deal like that actually come together? Well, let me tell you the story of, of how this happened. So a digital agency and many digital agencies sell web hosting uh, had a big server with lots of cPanel accounts on it with all their customers' websites. And they've been building websites for years and years and years, as most agencies do. And then they got to the point where their customers uh, were using emails through cPanel. And it's pretty bad for email, right? They were having dropouts. Emails are not always delivered quickly. The interface is pretty crappy. There's no great webmail. And our whole, our whole business is putting people onto Google email, right? So Gmail, Docs Drive, the whole G Suite platform. And what we knew is that we could give their customers a much better experience by switching them over to G Suite and away from cPanel pop mail. But also, it actually solved a very, very big problem for this digital agency. Because what I know from running a hosting company in the past is that up to 50%, and this is crazy, in a web hosting business, up to 50% of your customer supporting queries are actually related to email. And what that means is there was a very large support burden that was hurting the profit of this agency. And I was able to take that away. And so what we negotiated, and we've actually since done this for a number of agencies, what we were able to negotiate is that we will take those customers' email hosting portion of their service. You keep the web hosting, 
we'll take the email hosting portion and we will basically force those customers to switch to either G Suite or a very small handful went over to Office 365. But effectively, we said, we have bought the email hosting portion of this business. It is now owned by IT Genius. Guess what? We're no longer doing any cPanel-based email pop hosting and you've got to all switch over, right? And so the customers, yeah, one or two grumbled, but most of them could see the value in a much better email system. They were happy to oblige and we gave them a free migration. Now, usually a migration, we would charge a thousand, two thousand, maybe even more dollars for, for that migration service. But we said to those customers, we're going to do that for you for free. It's a one-time offer for you to take this up. And, you know, 90, 95% of the customers said yes to that. Now, the big problem that we solved for that agency was that they were able to increase their profits dramatically on those web hosting services that they were selling. And so they maybe even should have paid us for this. Uh, but it worked out as a very good deal. We did the transaction for $1, as I said. We solved a big problem for them. And you know what came our way was 120 new customers that came our way. Now, that was, you might be asking, well, Pete, why did you spend $10,000 to bring on these customers and then earn like, you know, what was at the time five bucks a month per mailbox, right? Which we only earn a very small margin on, on G Suite accounts. Well, what worked well for us is I know that a customer of mine will be a customer for five or 10 years. We have a very long lifetime value of our customer, very long customer journey, customer um, uh, length. And from there, I know that in any given year, if I acquire a customer base, up to 30% of those customers will spend at least 100 bucks with me. Now, it might be testing out a new product. It might be uh, getting some support for something small that they need fixed on their Google account. Or some of them may even spend $1,000 or a couple of thousand dollars on actually engaging with us on our concierge service. And so it's purely a numbers game for me. Now, I've got to wait for those numbers to come through. But I know that if I acquire 100 customers, that might be $10,000. $20,000 in the first year, not always in the first year, it's more likely to be over three years for that. Um, but I know that over 10 years, that I'm going to be developing deep relationships with each one of those customers. And because our churn is so low, our customer churn is nearly zero. Uh, that is a very, very, very good deal for me. Uh, it's great that I was able to negotiate it for a dollar, I may have paid more. Um, but it was a very good deal and very much a win win on both sides. Can I, can I just uh, kind of sum up with some of the takeaways I've taken from, from this story? Yeah. First up there, like I love that it was not an acquisition of an entire business, right? You were, like we alluded to in the, the, the first part of this episode, we talked about the fact that you could buy just a, a portion of the business. So you've, ta you've solved a problem because there was this hassle in that digital agency that they were potentially just you know, going to maybe shut down or they're trying to figure out what to do. And then you came in and go, Hey, I'll take it off your hands. And here's a dollar just to signify a transactions happened. Right. That's something, if you're not aware, the $1 is just so that there's like an actual transfer and it's a legal transfer. That's a purchase has happened. That's where the $1 figure comes from. But I love that. Also the lesson here is to go, well, just because you do a $1 deal, it doesn't mean there aren't other costs. I used to have that when I, when I ran my seminars around buying a business for a dollar, there would be people showing up who literally had a dollar for their name. That's all they had. And it's like, yeah, you might negotiate a deal for a dollar, but you're going to need some other money to make this business work. Like there's a reason you're buying it for a dollar. And so I love that. And then the other thing that I take from there too, and I've always loved this, you know, when you and I have played the board game cash flow, I, I love watching you play that too. And the way that you think about going, well, I'm prepared to put in that $10,000 now, and I may not get it back for the first year, 
But I know in two, three years, you, you're prepared to play the long game, which is what successful entrepreneurs do. They know that this is a long game. They're not looking at how do I make a quick buck now? They're looking at how does this strategically play out? And I, I just, they're some of the, my biggest takeaways from, from that deal in particular. So yeah, thanks so much for, for sharing that. What's your next deal? My next deal is, this is a fun one. And we could spend a whole episode on this. I have recorded other podcasts, which we might link below with the whole story on this one. But I received an odd email into our support desk one morning for a business that I had been talking to maybe four or five weeks earlier. And I'd, I'd chatted to the business owner and I'd given them an offer on the business. And that was a six-figure offer. So it was a significant offer on the business. We weren't very far into negotiations. They kind of said, oh, you know, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll let you know. Let's have a chat in a couple of weeks and see how we go, right? It's very early stage. So I received this email to our ticketing desk and it said, hey, can we transfer into you? This is from a, a customer of that competitor. Uh, they said, hey, can we transfer our Google account to you because uh, our reseller has just gone into liquidation? And I went, oh, wow. And I realized who it was. It was this customer that I had spoken to a number of weeks earlier. And so I jumped on the phone immediately and couldn't get through to the business, but somehow I was able to get through to the liquidator through a link on their website. I said, hey, what's, you know, what's happening here? And they said, oh, look, the, you know, the business has gone into liquidation. It owes more than, uh, than they have assets for, and there's going to be no money paid out to any creditors. It's toast. And I said, well, what's going to happen to the customers? You know, at the time, this was a pretty significant competitor of ours. And they said, oh, look, the company's just being wound up. I think one of the staff is going to take these customers and start up their own business. And I thought, oh, wow, that's, that's, uh, that's interesting. I was actually interested in, in buying the business previously. Can we uh, you know, maybe have a chat about this? Over the course of the next 24 hours, what I uh, realized and what I found out was that the, uh, the director of the business was basically, he was done with it. He'd gone to ground and there was you know, no luck in, in getting any information from him. The sole employee of the business was basically wanting to take over the business and take over the customers. Um, but the intellectual property of the business was owned by the father of the director. Uh, and I happened to have a good relationship with the father of the director. And so there were multiple moving parts here. There was a business that was in liquidation that had assets. And what I knew was a liquidator has to, in their duty, do what they can to get uh, a return on the assets that the business owns. Now, the business owned one vehicle and nothing else apart from the customer base, right? But I knew that I could make an offer for the assets, which was the customer base, uh, and it would have to be considered by the liquidator who was looking after the best interests of the, uh, of the creditors of the business, one of which was Google, who was owed hundreds of thousands of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so the employee wanted the customer base. The father of the director owned the IP. He owned all the domain names, which were critical. And I had the liquidator to deal with as well. And the customers were disappearing by the minute because they had all found out, oh, this service provider of mine has gone under and they're disappearing in droves. And this was actually the first day of our company conference. I'd flown all of my team into one city. It was the day before, actually. It was the day before. And uh, we were about to start a three-day conference with all of our team. We'd spent tens of thousands of dollars to get everyone into one city. And, you know, it was a big deal. It was a once-a-year thing. And like 24 hours, this happens, right? While I'm sitting in my hotel room in Cebu. And what I was able to negotiate in the next 24 hours was for the liquidator to accept an offer for the assets of the business, for me to buy the business. I also had to get the employee on board because... 
Otherwise, that person would have just taken all the customers because they had the relationships with all the customers. And so I negotiated to give the employee a job with us, negotiated their employment contract. And I negotiated to buy the IP of the business, the domain names, which were critical for us to be able to transfer the reseller accounts and all those kind of things. I bought the domain name for a dollar. Now, I want to step back a little bit. I said that a couple of weeks prior, I'd been talking to them about buying the business and I'd offered them hundreds of thousands of dollars. This business, the revenue was probably about 600,000. Guess what I offered the liquidator? You want me to actually guess? If you want. I'm going to say sub 20. I offered him five grand. <laughs> and, he, and he said, no, if you, that's not enough. Uh, but you know, it's, it's it, actually his words were, it's not worth the paperwork for that. And so what we eventually settled on was, was 15 for the business. Um, and so a business that I'd literally offered hundreds of thousands of dollars for uh, prior, uh, I bought for 15,000. Now, again, that's not the only cost in that transaction. The employee that came on board uh, was worried. Hey, if this doesn't work out, you know, you, you could like hire me and then fire me the next day, right? And then, uh, you know, I'm not well looked after. So I said, okay, if for whatever reason, by mutual decision or not, no matter what party initiates it, if you are no longer an employee of this business within six months time, I'll give you $20,000. Uh, now that ended up happening. It was prorated. About three months in, we worked out we, you know, we weren't a good fit to work together, uh, and we ended up paying ten or twelve thousand dollars or or whatever the appropriate fee was for that. Let's say it cost thirty thousand dollars around that around that mark to actually complete the deal. And with that, we acquired six hundred thousand dollars of revenue, over two hundred customers, thousands of like nearly four thousand mailboxes um, came through, uh, and thirty percent upsell rate. On those mailboxes. Now that's a that's a great deal in itself, and that's great negotiation, and that's fun. Uh, but there's more to the deal. But Carl, I'm going to let you jump in and ask questions because I think you've got some stuff you want to ask. I firstly want to highlight like some of the takeaways that I've got from this. Like, firstly, I think the 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 intelligence of knowing that you can talk to liquidators, right? I think there's an opportunity worth highlighting there that if you're like, where do I go finding people? Well, start building some relationships with liquidators so that they know you're looking to buy businesses. That means when a business goes into liquidation that might meet your rules, they, you might be one of the first people they're going to call. There's, there's value in, in that. And so I love that you did that. I love that you started with the five grand. And also I think there's a really great takeaway there to realize that there is sometimes like, it's not all about money, right? As he said, it wasn't worth the paperwork for that map right? So that's good feedback to go, okay, well, now you know with a liquidator that five grand is not enough work for the paperwork they're going to have to go through. So that gives you context, that gives you, gives you lessons. And I think that's also a really great uh, example. I know in my own experience in the past, I could get quite nervous about putting in a low ball offer because there's like, if I offend them, then I might've missed out on the deal. But generally, if you start low, there's only one place you can go, which is up right? You know, even if they fully are offended, they'll probably get over it if you offer them a bit more money. So just kind of a good reminder there that don't be afraid to go in low and work your way back up. It's a lot harder to start high and then come back down. Totally. Ideally, ideally the other person gives the first number because he who gives the first number loses. Uh, but if you've got to give a number, I'm always happy to give a low ball. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I mean, I, I suppose, I suppose the question I have is, with the the droves of customers leaving and you've you've taken this business on board you've you've got the the for 15 grand you've taken this all on board like 
just to make sure this is super, super clear to everyone, the, the money that was owing to Google and all those things, that was not your problem, right? Now that you'd acquired it. Correct. Correct. So for 15 grand, you instantly had all these people and then you got them starting to pay you. Like what was the kind of integration process? Was it, was it hours and hours aside from that one team member? Like what did it take you to integrate that business into your business? Um, well, this was sitting by the pool while half of our team were getting drunk together and uh, spending time together uh, was myself, my operations manager, finance manager, uh, basically importing CSVs of customers into our billing system and sending out welcome emails. So that, that, was, that was like the initial 24 hours and that was pretty crazy. Um, but we stumbled across a really big problem. And that problem was that customers and significant customers, I'm talking about a large franchise a large Australian franchise network had just paid their annual bill to this company. And I'm talking about like a week beforehand had just paid their annual bill. And there, this one company's annual bill was 60 or 70 grand. And then the next week it had been put into liquidation. And so this customer had paid for a whole year of service. And most of the customers were in the same situation. They'd paid for a year of service. And then the company that had promised to service them had basically disappeared. And so the customers were, were kind of up shit Creek. Thankfully, Google, didn't shut the customers' accounts down, even though they never got paid. Um, but we were in the position where the customers were expecting service and support. And so what we decided was, well, how can we give love to these customers? How can we build a great relationship with these customers? And many of them were already pissed because this was not the first time they had been through a liquidation with this company. Oh, no. <laughs> it was the second. It was the second liquidation and they'd been through two or three rebrands and they were just fed up with it. They were, you know, they, they heard from one more company and we were the fourth or the fifth brand that they had dealt with for their Google account. And they were like, F you, we don't want to talk to you. Don't even bother, right? And so I personally called each one of those customers and we were able to retain like nine out of, actually 95% of those customers we were able to retain, which was pretty cool. But here's what we did. We said to those customers, look, we know you've paid for up to a year in advance for your support. We will support you out of our own pocket for the first year as a gentleman's agreement, no contracts or anything like that. As a gentleman's agreement, we will support you for free for up to the point where your first renewal is. If you renew your licenses with us, you don't have to pay us for support. You don't have to pay us for a you know, support contract or anything else like that. But if you renew your licenses with us from then forward as a sign of good faith and 95% of those customers took that up because it was a win-win. It was a win for them. It was a really big sign of good faith for us. And the amount of strong relationships that we were able to build with those customers from, you know, leading with that love to them uh, and giving them that service was just, it was phenomenal. And, and that's one of the best deals that we've done. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty darn cool, the, the fun stuff of, uh, of you know, the, the financials of it. But I think the real magic in there is understanding the human element of what is a customer feeling when they are on the receiving side of an acquisition, their biggest fear is, hey, is this customer going to screw me? Or, you know, should I look for another vendor? And if you can, particularly as the CEO, lead by sending an email and saying, hey, here's immediately what we are going to do to look after you. Here's all the goodies that you're going to get. And then actually following up and then the key customers, you jump on the phone and you call them and you say, hey, how are you going? You know, we're going to work through this with you guys. And uh, those customers are, you know, are all most of them still customers of ours today, which is pretty cool. What I love most about 
everything you've shared on these these deals so far is the give love like your attitude of going how do i give love to these people and you did something that you legally did not need to do that many other business owners um potentially would go you know what i'm not going to honor and support this sixty thousand dollar you know i'm not going to just give free support to these people like i'm go i'm i need money to to live right but again it goes back to what we mentioned before you've got this great long-term view you've got the ability of delayed gratification i'm not going to get the money today but i'm going to get something down the line and the relationship is important to you and, and you you'd also mentioned something that i think is super crucial and underlies all of this all of these deals is any deal you do you, if you can be looking for the win-win i think there's a lot of let's call it immature entrepreneurs out there that go for the win-lose right like it's, it's a competition i'm going to win at this deal and this other person's lost and as soon as you do that like they or there's the assumption that for me to win someone else has to lose but if you look at all these deals that you're explaining so far every single one of them is a win-win everyone is getting they might not get a hundred percent of what they wanted but everyone is kind of winning in this there's there's no one left completely out in the cold yeah and i, and I think when it comes down to negotiations like it's never going to be butterflies and rainbows and unicorns there's always going to be a bit of give but how I like to say it is like when it comes down to the numbers, everyone probably feels just that little bit uncomfortable that they, you know, they, they didn't get exactly what they wanted or, or, you know, or they paid a little bit too much. But at the end of the day, everyone's getting a level of fair exchange uh, from the deal. And that absolutely has to be the intention. I'm curious, did, did, with any of the deals you've done, have you ever felt like, you know, you couldn't sleep at night about how the deal went down? No, only when only when they went slowly because that frustrates me. <laughs> uh, I like I like to move quickly, and if someone's dragging the chain on legals, um, or uh, particularly when dragging the chain on legals is costing me consulting time and costing them consulting time, and they can't see it, and I just want to shake them and say, "No, you know this is costing us both money." Uh, you know that makes it frustrating. And you know I mentioned in the last episode, someone someone's lawyer wanted to do everything in in word rather than google docs and the amount of revisions that we had to do back and forward because of that and emailing attachments back and forward which is just like you know 1990s business for me it was it was frustrating and challenging so that's that's the thing that really gets to me uh the skill there for me to learn is to have patience particularly when i'm on the acquiring side i guess i've got a bit of power there in that i can choose whether or not to hand over the money and do the deal um, so that's probably the one thing that, that kind of gets me. Yeah. it's amazing. It's great. And so, uh, do you have a third deal that you want to go through and share with us? I have a third deal to share. Um, so this was a recent deal. I've got to be really careful not to, uh, expose too many of the commercials of the deal. Um, but this was a competing business where a, a colleague of mine who I'd done a lot of business with, uh, in the past had a really good working relationship with, had built a great business. Uh, similar to ours in structure, much earlier stage, but very, very, very complementary to what we were doing. And so, you know, if you want to trawl through news articles, I'm sure you can find the information on what this deal was. But this business was growing and going well and reselling a product that happened to integrate really well with G Suite, which is what we sell. And that product was a really nice complimentary fit for many of our customers. Now we've got 1,400 and something customers and those customers were all potential customers of this product. 
The second interesting factor in this deal was that for my colleague, he had built the business to a certain point and he describes it as he'd gotten to base camp, but he was looking up at Everest and he was kind of questioning, wow, do I really want to continue going this alone? He had a small team, but he's a solo founder. Uh, sorry, he had, had a co-founder co in the business who was, who was not operational in the business. And he was looking at it going, well, how much of this do I want to you know, go and actually put the effort into building? And looking at our business, we had already built what he needed to build, the infrastructure around the sales team, the account management teams, the delivery teams, um, you know, the support teams, all of that infrastructure we had built. And so this business was just a really, really, really obvious slot into our business. So here's where this is different to the other deals that we've done. As it sat as a business, it was a profitable business and it was going well. Uh, however, uh, I usually look for the undervalued businesses. They're the kind of businesses that I like and you know, I like to be a bit tight with it as well. Uh, I like to get a really, really great deal because then I can play that long game. Uh, but with this business, there were very little customers and I'm talking about less than 50 customers. The value in this business was not the existing recurring revenue. It was not the existing customer base, like you know, 50 customers I don't get excited about because it's going to take me a long time to extract value from those relationships. But what was in that business was the value of the vendor relationships that this person had built. And the value of those vendor relationships, and some of those had exclusive lead flow deals, exclusive referral deals. There was a, a, a position of market dominance with a particular product that was being resold, they all started to add up to the intrinsic value of the business and forward-facing value that we could actually predict. We could look at this business and say, hey, well, if they continue getting this many leads and they continue converting at this amount and they were really good with their numbers, I know that I can get X amount of dollars per year from this business and it's gonna keep growing and snowballing. And a little bit of fear came up for me as a buyer, which is great for them. <laughs> Uh, a little bit of fear came up in that, oh, if I don't buy this now, they're going to be much further along down the line in another, in another year or two, and it's going to cost me way more. And so we paid for a business that uh, had, as I said, less than 50 customers. You know, previously I'd bought hundreds and hundreds of customers for, uh, you know, a dollar or for a couple of thousand dollars, right? Uh, this business, we paid multiple hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, for a business with less than 50 employees. Uh, we also gained an Australian employee, a very expensive Australian employee onto our books, which was additional cost to the business, uh, additional complexity to the business. We brought on a whole new product line and that whole new product line, while profitable, required a shift and a retooling and a training for our team. Uh, so there was a lot to bring on there. But again, I'll come back to this is a long play. What I know is from what was already built, that intellectual property, it's going to be integrated into our team. And it might take us six months to build that value into the business, um, but that's going to return, you know, return over many times. And over the course of three years, I go back to my rule. If I can double my money in three years, then I'm absolutely laughing. Now, at an absolute minimum, we'll get a 50% uplift on what was invested over three years. If we do well, we will far exceed uh, doubling uh, in and, you know, we've got things, other things, other metrics like, you know, increase in enterprise value uh, from having this additional person, you know, helping work in the business and, uh, and run the business. So that's an example of a deal where the per customer 
you know, expense that we actually paid out was very high. There was absolutely lots of revenue and lots of profit in the business, but the real value was actually forward thinking. And that's where there is really a lot of value in knowing your numbers in the business. I know what my cost to acquire a customer is. I know what my customer lifetime value is. I know how much I can reduce my churn for every additional service that a customer buys from me. Uh, I know that if I get an X amount of conversion rate on X amount of leads, I'm probably going to get X amount of customers. And if I'm selling them on average this much, then that's exactly what the numbers are going to look like for the next few years. And when you know all of those numbers and you just really live those numbers, then you can make really informed decisions about these. And, it, and all of this just comes down to a spreadsheet. None of it is but numbers. None of it is going with your gut. It's all just down to a spreadsheet and you bring it back to the cost of capital. What's it going to cost me to, to dip into the capital uh, to actually execute the deal? And then that's it. And then it comes down to, you know, you know, your negotiation and vendor finance and those other bits and pieces. Yeah, I think, I think it's really important there that you've talked about that knowing your numbers is crucial. And, and we did touch on it in, in the first part of this, this episode. We did talk about like, oh, well, look, if you're not great at those numbers thing, bring someone else who is in. And I, I still stand by that. However, I will add something to that, that I think every business owner, it, it, owes it to themselves to at least be able to understand the numbers enough that you can ask good questions. You might be sitting there going, well, I'm not a numbers person. I'm not like Pete who likes spreadsheets and, you know, mechanic thinking and will just like loves the numbers. Like, cause to be honest, I'm really good at numbers, but I don't love numbers. Like I can do numbers, but it's not my, it's not my uh, favorite thing to do. Um, but I know enough about the numbers that I can dig in. I can play around with some forecasts and I can ask questions to an accountant or, or whatever. And, the number of times that has helped me in business, the fact that I can do that rather than just take what the, say the accountant or someone tells me, especially when you're looking at acquiring a business to be able to look at someone else's profit and loss and not just be like, Oh my God, it's numbers to be able to look at it and think about it and get out a calculator, run some numbers, check some things to have that then bring up questions you can ask is only going to serve you in your own business, let alone any deals you might do. So I think that's super valuable there to, to, to really get good at your numbers and um, as I said, if you're not great at collecting the numbers, feel free to outsource that, but don't delegate the understanding what the numbers mean. Invest the time, invest the intention to at least learn enough about it to be able to understand what the numbers mean so you can ask good questions. Because otherwise you're just stabbing in the dark and you're bound to get taken advantage of. Would you agree, Pete? Yeah, absolutely. I think the, the fundamental principle of strong due diligence is building that commercial model of what is this business going to look like when the two businesses are combined. And, and you've got to really dig deep into things. Um, you, and, and all this should be done in the due diligence stage. You should have a really clear picture of what this looks like. And one of my sayings that I like to share is you should have aha moments rather than OF moments. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> I like that. Get those, get those ahas happening. And as, as you said, Carl, uh, you know, really... Um, having the numbers prompt you to ask questions, that's, that's, how, that's how it's done. Like, you know, that's the you real have, value of it, right? That's the, num real value, the, num yeah. the numbers are there just to prompt what if questions. What if this happens good? What if this happens bad? And uh, I don't know about you, Pete, but I'm, I'm, I'm assuming because I know my style is when I do any kind of forecasts and calculations, I'll often be like super like, oh my God, this is amazing. How great it's going to go. And then I'm going to go, okay, that's nice to fantasize about that. But let's come back and be a bit realistic. 
let's let's assume that it's going to be half what I expect or even a tenth of what I expect. What does that look like? And is it still a good deal? Is this still worth doing even if it's only a tenth of what I would love it to be? And and that's again, it's just again prompting the question that doesn't matter what the answer is, it's the question about it. The longer time frame you have, the more data you have and the better you can be with your numbers. When you're in growth phase, particularly early stages of the business, it's very much butt numbers. Clarify what butt numbers. Okay, napkin napkin numbers or, okay, imaginary fairy tale, uh, aspirational. Numbers you pulled out of your butt, basically. Yeah, aspirational numbers, yeah. As you grow and scale the business, you have so many more data points as the business is maturing. And your role as the founder or CEO is less about creation and more about tweaking, managing, improving. Uh, at least in my experience, that's what it's been. I've uh, you know, really taken that journey from initially being the creator and creating everything to now really being a bit more of a mechanic. And we're going to cover uh, different archetypes in the uh, future episode coming up on Wealth Dynamics, which I'm looking forward to. Um, but I really enjoy that tweaking and numbers analysis process. I don't think I'm a real excited by the numbers kind of person. Like I'm excited by bank accounts growing. That's always cool. But I think what excites me is the problem-solving element of the deal, making the numbers work, finding a fair and equitable valuation of a business for both sides, trying to find that win-win where you know everyone's a little bit uncomfortable, but everyone also feels like they've got a good deal. Um, that's, that's really where the fun of the numbers comes down to for me because it's trying to piece together the puzzle in making the commercials work so you can make the deal work. Yeah, that's amazing. I love that. And so I think to, to wrap up this episode, if you were to think about not just those three deals, but across all the deals you've done, when it comes to acquisitions, like what are your top three lessons or things that based on that you might choose to do moving forward? What, what kind of, you know, obviously you've done what you've done and you've taken us through that, but you've obviously had very different deals there. Now you've got a deal where it was a far more strategic purchase rather than an It's still a good deal, but it was a very different numbers. So I'd love to know kind of your three biggest lessons and then what your intentions are moving forward, if at all any different. I would say, first of all, a couple of traps for new players. Number one is like people only sell shit. Like appro approach it from that. It might be a great business, but approach it, uh, approach it as if someone is sending out zero invoices to customers that, that don't even subscribe to your service, like one of the ones that happened with us. I used, I used to tell my students, assume that everyone is lying to you and assume, assume that everything that's been sent to you is a lie and that your duty during the evaluation and then due diligence is to look for proof that anything they've told you is true, that anything they've told you is true. My very pessimistic uh, father of my ex-girlfriend uh, had a great saying, everyone's incompetent and everyone lies. <laughs> very cynical lawyer. I love him. He's a great guy. Uh, so traps from your place. Number one, yeah, expect that it might be shit, right? Number two, and this is the numbers side of that, expect that up to 30% of customers will just disappear. So ex expect that up to 30% of the value does not actually materially exist. And then I think like moving forward, the, the big picture takeaways for me are number one would be keep your ears open because deals are everywhere. I've given an example where I bought part of a business. I've given an example where, you know, I just sold a pro I solved a problem for someone and they effectively gave me a uh, hundred customers. That's really important for you to just be open to that and go to the trouble of being around 
and being known as someone who's interested in, uh, in, in this kind of thing. The next one, number two, is, you know, yes, getting help is important, um, but I'd say more important is being creative with the negotiation of these deals, whether it's performance clauses, uh, whether it's uh, the way that you pay and how the vendor financing works, uh, whether it's how the customer handover works or how the brand works. There's lots of different ways to put these deals together and make them happen. So be open and be creative with that. Uh, and then like, like any initiative like this, follow up and check in on how you did on the numbers. Like if, if this is a real strategy for you, it's really important that you go back and you say, hey, well, how did we go with that? Uh, you know, we went back and we looked at our first few deals and we worked out what was the churn, what was the, the result, what do we own in the first year, second year, third year, what was the total ROI? And some of these happened five, six, maybe even seven years ago now. And once I had that data and I realized, oh, wow, 30% of customers are spending X amount in the first year, I knew, oh, well, okay, yeah, sure, there's a cost of capital and we've got to cash flow this, uh, but we can continue to spend money here. And this is really going to help us with acquiring new customers and getting to where we want to go to. So this is not the strategy for uh, you know, everyone. Um, you know, hopefully me sharing these deals has uh, helped you in some way with how you might approach uh, deal making in general uh, or you know, strategic partnerships in general. Um, but always be open for these kind of opportunities. Hopefully this has excited you to uh, you know, at least have your eyes and ears open for them because this has been one of the best ways that uh, our business has grown over the years. And, and so you know, is there anything that you'll do differently moving forward based on these last, like, you know, the, all the deals you've done, is there anything, will you change anything about your strategy or is it continue as it has been? I always learn something. Uh, I, I'm usually learning one thing per deal at the moment, even, you know, buying or selling. It's usually something to do with negotiations or what, do, or what document format you're going to use for your, uh, for your contract <laughs> or, uh, I've had deals that have fallen over because we, uh, didn't ask for an exclusivity when we started negotiating and they shopped around the deal and ended up wasting our time and going with someone else. No, I don't. I don't have any like. I don't have any like big ones. You know, if I had like, there's no major shifts to the direction that you're there's going. No, no, there's no like. There's no one big fail or anything like that. I think what uh, one thing that I have been pondering lately is that uh, bigger is not necessarily better. Uh, you know, because we've been on this journey of you know really growing a good cohort of customers now, and now we have the funds to be able to uh, execute on even larger deals. But I'm starting to question, uh, is bigger actually better now? Uh, or do we focus our attention on enriching the existing customers? Um, and let me tell you, having the, having the position of having a good cash pile sitting in the business ready to execute on these kind of deals, that's a great place to play from. Uh, if you've got a great deal and then you've got to scramble to pull the cash together, that kind of fear gets injected into the negotiation process. And, uh, and that's, you know, that's not good at all. Uh, but, but particularly deals like, um, you know, I mean, I know that 15 grand is not a crazy amount of money, but just being able to have that money lying around when the opportunity came along our way, when the liquidation happened and there was no vendor finance needed or anything because the liquidator would have told us, no, nah, see you later, this is all too hard. Uh, you know, we were able to execute on that quite quickly. 
And other businesses, they want to make sure that you're giving them a good deposit. Um, you know, in some deals, I've negotiated a long vendor finance period of up to three years sometimes, and they wanted a really decent chunk up front, nearly 50% up front on that deal that I did. Um, and so being able to have cash available to do that. We're going to talk about funding sources and all of Pete's magic tricks in uh, finding money when you need to find money in another episode. Uh, but uh, hopefully this has been a help. Yes, you are, you are the master of that. So I'm very much looking forward to that episode. Um, this has been awesome. And I just want to thank you, Pete. Like, you know, obviously you and I have had these conversations privately, but I think, I think it really shows a lot to be willing to come on, on, on and, and share this with, with our amazing listeners here. So uh, thanks for, for doing Thankfully, that. Thankfully, all of the companies that I exposed information on are either deregistered or in liquidation. So no one can sue me. Fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, and, and we kept and we kept names out of it. And we we kept didn't check. That, we didn't check know. commercials. That's that's all right. I, and I and I think the most important thing here is that you know, like, don't get too worried about the numbers. Like, listen to the lessons behind them, uh, and mm. you know how we're operating, and just get more excited about what's possible. Yeah. I think that's really what we were aiming to do with this episode, guys, is to help you realize what is possible. Uh, because I think if we go back to what we shared when we talk, first introduced the idea of buying businesses, one of the number one. Uh, objections that would happen when I would suggest to someone they could buy a business is, you know, they just imagine they needed millions of dollars. They imagine that they need a lot of money. They don't have the money. And then the second thing is, why would I, why, why would I want to? And I hope that if that was you at the start of these episodes, that by now you can see why you might want to. And you're realizing that, you know, you don't need to say, I don't have the money as an excuse because there are plenty of opportunities out there. And, but again, let's, let's reiterate that, we're not saying this is the magic thing that you should definitely do. All we're offering it is a suggestion that you might want to look at to grow your business as another way to grow faster. And as Pete said, I think we should totally do an episode about is bigger better. I think we could do a whole episode on that because I've got my own experiences around deciding whether growth is a good thing or, or, or not. And um, so don't always get so excited and go, oh my God, I have to go and acquire businesses now. Um, I hope you're excited and you're thinking about it, but don't feel like it's the must thing you know, the must do thing for you right now. I'm going to ask my girlfriend if bigger is better and uh, get an opinion to, to bring to the next episode. <laughs> You'll bring it back to the next episode and see what she, I'll, see what I'll bring it back. Say. Uh, I wanted to, I wanted <laughs> to throw in before we close off and we will close off here because we're starting to get silly. The, each one of the deals that I've done here uh, so far was less than a hundred thousand dollars down payment. So, you know, even though some of these have been quite significant, deals, you know, the ability to use vendor finance, the ability to be creative in payments and performance clauses and those kind of things uh, will allow you to uh, not have to, you know, remortgage the house and sell your soul just to get the deal done. Love that. Thank you so much. Let's call this episode a wrap. Awesome. And Pete, you can do the summary of where they can listen to us. I'll do the wrap. Yeah. Check out rising.show for our show notes, uh, links to all of our socials. Check us out on social. Uh, let us know what you thought about this. If you're inspired to go after some of your competitors or to you know look at uh, different areas of your industry, drop a comment, uh, leave us a message on social. Uh, as always, we would love your review. If you are enjoying this podcast, please leave us a review uh, in any of your uh podcast channels that you receive this amazing podcast on and we look forward to catching you next time cheers ciao